HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Nourish and Flourish, handcrafted, ad-free, print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty and the jazz is musicians. It's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I admire, whose work shows passion, drive, often concern for the planet. And today, I have a guest who is a butcher. Welcome, Heather. Heather Thomason from Primal Supply Meats in Philadelphia. Hello. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to have you here to talk about all kinds of things. First of all, you are a career changer, and I love career changers because I think it's so hard to figure out what to do with your life. And you were a designer in Brooklyn, and then you circuitously ended up in Philadelphia um, carving up animals. Mm -hmm. So I want to know all about that. And also, since this is a time when we hear almost daily that in order to feed the planet, we need to eat less meat. Very interested to have someone who focuses their life on meat and poultry. So let's let's start with this career-changing thing. You were in Brooklyn and you were a designer. Tell me about like the designer's life. Like What attracted you to that? Oh, that's such a good question. I grew up being pretty involved in art in general. Um, you know, I was an art student. I trained in dancing um, all through high school and college. And that's what brought me to New York. And I painted and I drew and I did all those things. But, you know, I had parents that were like, oh, what's your career path? What are you going to do with this? There's no, are you going to be an artist? How do you make money? So that never seemed like a thing I could do. And um, when I found myself 
in college in my late teens, I guess, early 20s. Um, and I had just stopped dancing. I had been really pursuing a professional career in dancing. And I just like did a strange retirement at the age of, you know, 19. Um, <laughs> and so I found myself in school and the only place I knew to go was the art department because um, it was kind of like comfortable and homey to me. And a friend of mine was like, why don't you take a design class? Like, well, I'm not, I wasn't a computer person. I associated it with computers. Didn't really seem logical to me, but why not? You know, like you have to fill out your schedule. So I took an intro to design class and it taught me things about, I don't know, like space and balance and alignment and these basic design concepts. And they made sense to me. I had no idea. Like, I guess I had been thinking about them all along in painting and drawing, but having these things introduced to me in like a formal, you know, college classroom setting was just something that clicked and I got just really interested. So in my design work, because I did a lot of kind of early concept stuff, I did do layouts and other things, but I was always sort of involved in the very beginning of like, there's an idea and how do we translate this to something visual? I think I still do a lot of that in my life, just not in such a formal capacity. So I, I think I'm still, I will always be a designer and there will always be design in my life and I use it in my business now, so. so I've read that you saw an opportunity to help create a link in the system that was broken. Lots of people see these things. Lots of people join CSAs, as you did in Brooklyn. Lots of people have a food community. Like, we both know tons of them. Not everybody decides to be a butcher. <laughs> of all the things you could have done, taking this love, how did it end up with a big knife and much larger animals? Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's really a clear answer to that because it's, I wasn't like a meat person. You know, I was always a food person. I've always loved food. I've always loved cooking. I've cooked since a young age, never professionally, but always personally. In my twenties, when I started learning about where food was coming from, that was really interesting to me, but it wasn't like I was the person who was like, oh, I love meat. Let's, because <laughs> there's, there's people that love meat. I just loved food. So this is kind of a side note, but it took me a really long time to actually realize that I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's kind of silly, but it was when I started my second business that I was like, learn that term and how applicable it was to me. So I think that was always in me and this idea of, and the de designer in me maybe, seeing problems and trying to identify them and then design solutions, that that's kind of what brought me to butchery is like in the food system, the meat was just the most apparent thing. I was doing the thing where you go to the farmer's market and there's not that much available and it's kind of expensive. So you buy mostly vegetables and one really nice piece of meat from the person you know and you make that and you eat that once or twice in the week and you're otherwise kind of a vegetarian. It's not that I wanted more, but the access was so limited. And I think that's the problem that I saw. It's like, there needs to be more access. The farmers need to be able to have better ways to sell this and handle this. And the customers like me need to find better ways to get it. So yeah. it's really about finding the inner entrepreneur. What yeah. problem do I have that if I solve it for me, I can solve it for so many other people because there's so many other people like me. Right. So what were the seeds of that entrepreneurialism? I don't know. I guess it's been something that I've had all along, you know? So I, I told you that I grew up dancing and so much of that is this idea that you're kind of working forward and you're always trying to sort of break something down and figure out how to make it better. Um, it's a lot of critical feedback. You know, you walk into the studio every day and you start doing the same thing you did the day before. And the person who's training you, your teacher who's rehearsing you, they're going to walk by and they're, you know, maybe they're like, oh, that looks good, good job. But mainly they're just looking for the little nuances and things that you could do better. And every day that's the way that you work. You just kind of show up and you look to kind of pick it apart, find a problem, 
find a better way to do something. And I guess I, I just was raised that way, like in art classes and, and dance studios. You have chosen incredible mentors. Like you moved your husband <laughs> across, the, across the country to Oakland to get training at the yeah. local butcher shop. And that's a big step. Yeah. Well, I actually went to a farm first, which was crazy. Um, because I didn't take my husband and my dog or my business, which I had started, because I did actually start a small graph design firm um, at a certain point after working for other people. So my first mentor was actually the farmer that trained me. And then, yeah, and then I went home and was like, I got to stay on this path. There's a, somebody in California that I really admire who is taking apprentices. Could we move? <laughs> I would just want to dial back. So when you decided that in in order to learn more about butchery, you needed to go to a farm in Pennsylvania, and you picked up and you left your husband at home. I did. <laughs> uh, what did he say? So it's a funny thing where it's taken me a long time to learn something about myself that everybody who cares about me knew way before that. I think my parents, my brother, and now my husband, that I just do whatever I want. And I don't mean that in the bratty I do what I want. I mean, if I set my mind to something, like no one's going to get in my way of doing it. And I think other people saw that in me and were like, well, you know what? This is what she's going to do. I guess we're going to get behind her. <laughs> so yeah, he let me go. We had been, I got married uh, when I was 25. I'm almost 40 now. So my husband and I are actually about to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary, which is crazy. Congratulations. And Thanks. that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I actually, the year that I moved to the farm, uh, it was, we'd been married for seven years and it was sort of a funny thing where I was very homesick by the end and I was ready to like go home and, and live with my husband again. But when I first stepped away, we were about three years into running a business together. And so we had been working so intimately. Like we had this great group of friends in Brooklyn and we had this really nice little boutique design studio, but we worked together, we socialized together, we lived together, we slept in the same bed. There was just no break. Like I kind of gotten to a point without realizing it where I didn't know sort of where what I wanted and needed stopped and ended, like what time I want to get up in the morning. And so the little bit of separation was, was hard, but was actually kind of nice in some ways because I think it gave us both some space that we didn't even know we needed to just kind of like reset ourselves. And then when we came back together, it's like, okay, now we're moving forward on this new path and we're like a little more individual again. And that felt kind of nice. So I'm, I'm just, I'm lucky that I really like had that support system, to be honest. So after that, yeah. you heard about this apprenticeship opportunity. And anywhere in your mind where you're like, oh, it's really unreasonable to move across the country for an internship that at the time was like three days a week. Mm -hmm. And unpaid. And, and unpaid. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, for some reason, I didn't think that was crazy at all. I had been, when I made the decision that I wanted to transition into meat and butchery, um, you know, my, my problem solving was like, let me fix the supply chain. But my first step was like, well, I have to learn how to do it first. And there really weren't a lot of opportunities to, there still aren't, um, to train in this kind of small craft butchery. You know, it's an old model that's kind of had a resurgence. There's not a lot of people doing it. They're all small businesses. It's hard to take people on to train. So I had been looking for this opportunity for a long time, before I farmed, after I farmed. So it was rare and it was valuable to me. And so you asked me about mentors and working for Aaron Rakino, who is the owner of the local butcher shop, he was one of the first people that I really pursued, that I learned about someone, knew their history, and was so interested in, you know, being around him and learning what he knew because he had, um, he cooked with Paul Bertoli. And um, Aaron is an incredibly warm and thoughtful, like really just 
he's a good leader and he's a good teacher. And it's funny that, you know, you seek people out and the things you learn from them are never the things that you go to try to learn. <laughs> so what did you go to try to learn and then what did you actually take away? Yeah, well, so a really obvious thing is that I thought I would learn to make like salami and cured meats. Everybody who gets into meat thinks that at first. That's kind of the romantic thing. So I assume that Aaron was doing a ton of that at the local butcher shop because he was, you know, a, a protege of, of Paul Bertoli. But they weren't. They were a whole animal butcher shop and they were selling fresh meat and it didn't make sense for them to have this long-term curing program. So we didn't do that there and I didn't learn that from him at all. <laughs> I learned totally different things. What did you learn? Um, well, so I ended up actually having two mentors there, which was a funny thing. Um, Aaron was a very experienced chef butcher. You know, he, he had a pretty high level of, of butchery skill, um, you know, for, for a person who is a, really just a, you know, cooking. But he was wise enough to know that he did not know how to run a butcher shop. So he sought out to bring somebody else in. And a man whose name is Bill McCann, he was an older butcher, is an older butcher, who um, was kind of in like a semi-retirement phase. He had been down in the Fresno uh, area in Southern California, and he had done all the things, like a true journeyman. You know, he'd worked on slaughterhouse floors. He'd, he'd uh, you know, he traveled. He'd, he'd been a meat cutter. He had his own shop for a while, and he had fairly recently sold it. And the two of them have a really beautiful relationship, and um, they've sort of both took me on collectively. So I would go in really early. He, he was, he's older, and at the time he was in his 60s, and he's like, you know, admittedly like the old man who gets up early and wants to go into work early. So he would come in an hour or two before everybody else, and after like just a week of being there, I asked if I could come in too. So I would get up like when it was dark out every morning and go meet him over there, you know, 7, 7.30 in the morning, and uh, just spend time starting to cut the case. And Aaron also would go in really early to have time alone. So it would just be the three of us there. And usually Bill and I would start cutting the case and Aaron would come in and talk. And we just had this like alone time. What does cut the case mean? Oh, that's a good question. It's like, uh, so if you're opening a retail butcher shop, you're kind of coming in and you're freshly cutting the chops and tying the roast and basically pulling all this large format meat out and doing all the portioning and display to fill your meat case for the day. So, so I had this really valuable time for months where I would be alone with the three of them. And Bill was really determined to make a butcher out of me. He's also, it's worth noting that he's a small man. He's not a big guy. So, and I'm, I'm not a small woman, but I'm, you know, I'm not as big or strong as some of the men around me. And he had had to learn the kind of work smarter, not harder way. And it was nice to have someone who was like, you can use gravity. You don't have to use your muscles, things like that. So he was really determined to like really make a butcher out of me. Like he was the one who would pull me in the back and show me how to break beef off of a rail. Why do you think he was so determined? We hit it off in a lot of ways. I think personally we connected. Um, he has some children, like a daughter that was around my age. So I think he kind of felt a little, there was a side of him that sort of naturally wanted to look out for me. And he also was coming to the end of his career and had never mentored anyone. I think he saw the drive in me in a way that nobody really had to that point. Not that they, you know, they just weren't looking. Um, he really, he saw how much I really wanted to do it. He was fascinated by me being this, like, woman coming at it from a different way. And um, But what? it was important to him to pass it on. That's, like, a thing. He, he was aware that he had a lot of information to share, and he didn't want to not do that. Did your drive and follow-throughs surprise you at all? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was in the process. In hindsight, this all seems like such a fluid path, but in process it was really frustrating and it was so much to learn and it was so challenging and like it took a lot of, I was constantly having to train myself or remind myself to be patient about the learning curve that I was working my way around. And what made it 
possible for you to be patient or how did you unlock that patience within you? Um, I remember that we would, a uh, really early project to make hams, like starting with a leg of a pig and you have to skin the whole thing. And if you're training in butchery, it's a really nice thing to do because it's only a couple steps. And if you can learn them into your muscle memory, um, you can apply them elsewhere. So skinning is like not that easy at first. It's really awkward. You keep cutting through the skin and you're, you know, taking off too much fat and it's messy and it's not smooth. And you have to learn these kind of long fluid knife strokes and Aaron would just tell me like, just keep doing it. One of these days, like you'll take it off, you know, you'll, it'll all come off in one, in one thin layer and you'll leave all the fat behind and it'll just be perfect skin and you won't have any holes in or anything. It'll be one sheet. And I did it over and over and over for days. And I was like so mad at myself that I couldn't do it. And then one day I did, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it was like the seventh one that day. And I held it up. I was so proud. Um, and that was the first time I worked through something like that. But yeah, there was, there was months where I would go home and be so frustrated at the end of the day that I still couldn't do the thing I couldn't do the day before, or hadn't clicked in my head or something like that. And what do you think made it click in the end? Repetition. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, like anything. I mean, it's, yes, a physical thing like that. You know, it's doing it over and over again. So you commit it to the muscle you memory, you commit it to your mental memory. And then once those things are in you, then you start to do them better and faster and smoother. Um, it's not unlike dance. It's a bit of like rehearsing choreography. You know, the first time you sort of mark through the steps and you don't really know how to do them, you're just trying to remember them. So then you can do them again and a little better and then again and a little better and faster. And there was a moment where I think I made some, like some progress that was visible to me. Uh, like you kind of, you hit those, you know, the bends and the learning curve, if you will. And once you've got a couple of those and you're, it's like, it gets a little easier because you can start to see things behind you and you can start to see your own progress. Those first couple months, though, are cloudy. <laughs> I think I'm a more patient person now, but <laughs> not always. Well, it's a little bit of a Zen practice, right? This, mm -hmm. you know, focusing in the quietude and the doing something repetitive where you're paying homage to the animal. I struggle with that a little bit, too. Because of the place that I was coming to butchery from, where I knew farmers, um, you know, I knew the challenges they were facing. I really was trying to learn this thing so I could find a better way to, you know, let consumers get access to this. And I didn't want to waste anything. And, you know, when I was working there and Bill would say, like, come on, just go for it. Like, what's your problem? You know, don't be such, he wouldn't say, don't, don't be such a girl, but like something along those lines of kind of like, just, he would say really funny things. He'd be like, think of it like a rental car. Just, just drive it. <laughs> like, you don't crash rental cars? Are you crazy? <laughs> you know, I was opt out of insurance. Uh, and he would just, he would always try to just push me to be like, you know, stop holding back, just go, just go and try and do it wrong. And I really had a hard time doing that with a knife in my hand with the meat of animals, you know, sustainably raised that were, you know, thoughtfully harvested and that we didn't want to waste anything. Like I was terrified to do it wrong and to ruin it. And ruining it means like it doesn't become a steak or a roast. It becomes trim and their ground beef because you cut it wrong. But that's still value to the business. And that's, you know, the guys around me that were training at the same time did that. And I just couldn't do it. I watched them mess so much stuff up, just like, whatever, I got this. And they didn't have it. And they eventually would. But like, they kind of just went for it a lot in a way that I, I never really pushed myself through that, to be honest. And I trained slower for that reason. But I think I trained more thoughtfully. And like, when we all got around the, the bend, I ended up in the same place and I ended up with a little bit more like thoughtful detail in my process. So it made me a better butcher in the end. Brad had moved, I guess, doing a design business. You can do it from anywhere. We thankfully learned that in that process. <laughs> <laughs> um, you would come home 
super frustrated, I'm sure exhausted, maybe not so much fun, I don't know. Did that create tension? Was that like you got home to your cheerleader? (laughs) Well, it was kind of interesting because for us, um, at that point in my life, it was the first time in many years that we weren't working together. So it was kind of refreshing to come home and for the first time be able to say, how was your day? and have things to tell each other, which we didn't previously. I was actually, when I was working in Berkeley, um, Aaron and Monica felt really strongly about the quality of service to customers and they really only wanted butchers helping customers. We didn't have a counter staff, um, a butcher always stepped up. And I was the first of their butchers that wasn't a professionally trained chef before becoming a butcher. So when I was an apprentice, uh, I was not allowed to help customers, like for obvious reasons. I didn't have all the information. You wore an apron that said apprentice, so like it helped people realize that it was okay you were ignoring them. But I knew that my goal was to be a butcher. And I took really seriously this idea that um, I was watching the, the dynamic across the counter when people would come in and ask for recommendations. And they trusted them so much, you know, this, that's, that's what you want, right? That you walk into a place and you feel like you're talking to an expert. So I was kind of simultaneously obsessed with learning all that information and really understanding the cuts, not just how to cut them, but how to cook them. So pretty much every day I would take something new home. And even listening to people say the things like, oh yeah, just a couple minutes aside, medium hot pan, I would buy that cut and take that home and do that. So for that year... I was coming home and just like obsessively cooking a different cut every day to try to build my wealth of knowledge about that. So it was actually kind of fun. We've always cooked and we've always cooked together. But like my memory of the house we lived in Oakland is a lot of me only being home in the evenings <laughs> and that that's what we did, that we just like we cooked a lot. Yeah. What, what's the um, what's the cut that is the least expensive, most delicious? And what do you do with it? I am kind of an evangelist of things Like I teach a lot of whole animal butchery classes and I like to talk about where cuts come from and why they work the way that they do. And there's these beautiful places in the animal where the like hardworking parts and the not so hardworking parts meet. Mm -hmm. And that's where all the good stuff happens. So like it's the sirloin where, you know, you're kind of top of the back. These tender high end loin cuts start to meet the leg. So in beef or pork, uh, sirloin is is awesome. It's it's kind of like a beef top sirloin eats sort of like a New York strip, but costs so much less. And a pork sirloin is also great. And like a copa steak is kind of a similar thing. It's in the shoulder of the pig, but it's high up on the back. So it's a little farther away from the ground. It doesn't work as hard as the rest of the shoulder. And it's kind of as you're starting to transition into the rib loin. So that's that barrel muscle that you make the copa, capicola, gabagool, if you're from Philadelphia. (laughs) Um, But we, you, you could use it as a roast raw, but we portion it into steaks. And People come in and they ask us, because we're also always trying to sell other things than pork chops. In a whole animal, there's only so many of those. So anytime somebody comes in and they're like, what's something different? What could I try? I love to point them towards sirloin steaks or the shoulder steaks. The beef version of that would be like a chuck eye steak. Um, So most of us know to eat chuck as like a chuck roast, pot roast. Same thing, pork shoulder, pork butt, we think of pulled pork. But that single muscle that's that eye that's a continuation of the the loin into the shoulder is like a crossover cut. You could braise it or you could cook it in a skillet and maybe you chew a little bit more, but it gives you back so much in flavor and fat and all that. So I'm just like, <laughs> you look kind of hungry. I know. Like that, that, that all sounds so good. <laughs> it really does. Um, you did the apprenticeship mm-hmm. and then moved back East. Did you move specifically for a job or just your apprenticeship was up? I did. I I moved for a job. Well, so 
I apprenticed at the local butcher shop for, so when I arrived, they, uh, I met with them before I moved out there and they said, okay, we do take apprentices and you have to make a commitment for three months and, um, three days a week. And I was like, um, okay, that sounds great. Could I come five? (laughs) It's like, I'm only, I only want to do this once. So I worked five days a week, sometimes six. Um, and then when I rounded three months, I remember getting really nervous because, you know, I was kind of aware of where I was in that learning curve and I learned so much, but I just didn't feel like I was done. I felt like I was 75% of the way there. And I remember sitting down with Aaron and being like, I'm not done yet. And he's like, it's okay. You don't have to leave. <laughs> he's like, you're great. You know, you're valuable. You're doing good work. Like you can stay as long as you'd like to. And I was like, okay, great. I'd like to keep apprenticing. And then a month or so later, like a lot of stuff clicked for me. I was like, okay, I'd really like to work here now. I think I'm ready. And they were like, we think you're ready too, but we don't have a job. So I kind of had to wait and a job ended up, did end up opening and I stayed on for about a year. So I actually ended up being there for about a year and a half. Um, and I, you know, got paid up something like $12 an hour <laughs> for my first year of working as a butcher. Um, but while I was there, I got connected through some other food projects I was involved in, um, found out about uh, some folks in Philadelphia that were opening a really ambitious project, um, Kensington Quarters was a butcher shop and a restaurant that was going to be all under one roof. There's a couple of these around the country, but this was kind of early. There was maybe only one or two at the time. And they had this great plan. They didn't, there weren't butchers in Philadelphia, not whole animal butchers. Um, There's a great rich history of butchery in Philadelphia, but it kind of has made way to the grocery store model like everywhere else. And I was feeling a draw back to the East Coast. And I had met these people who were opening Kensington Quarters and like who's gonna run that place for you and they're like well we'll figure it out and so through kind of a pen pal long distance phone calls emails with uh you know some of the opening team uh they ended up offering me a position to come and manage the butcher shop and and come on as one of the opening butchers so I went back to my husband was like I know you love it here now (laughs) but what do you say we moved to Philadelphia so ironically I dragged him out of New York we had been there for a while he really loved it and he didn't want to move but he did and then he really found himself in California. My parents still jokingly call him California Brad because he just seemed like so <laughs> comfortable there, like wearing wayfarers and never having socks on. Um, so, but yeah, no, he moved to, to Philadelphia. So that's that's what brought me here. Um, you were able to do the apprenticeship because somehow you were able to afford it. Yeah. So yeah, so I had worked as a designer and at a certain point I we started our own small firm. Brad and I were kind of a design and development team. Like I would do the creative design and he would he would build the websites. But um, for the time I was farming and the time that I was in the local butcher shop, so most of two years, I worked without pay in both of those apprentice roles. And I had my laptop with me and there was we would kind of keep one or two clients on our roster that I would do work for. But it was it was hard because it was like you know, like learning every day, not just working, is physically and mentally exhausting. And then I would come home and I would try to put some work in at night or on my day off, I would try to meet a deadline. And I did that for those two years. And while we were in California, when I kind of transitioned and was really starting to work at the local butcher shop and was like, I'm on this path now, like we're really doing this. One day I said to Brad, I was like, you know, there was only really one client I was carrying. And I was like, it's time to phase this out. We need to for you to take jobs only now that don't need me. And I really can't have like I was living this kind of split life. It was like three quarters butchery, a quarter design, but that quarter of design was like using every last drop of brain energy I had every day. So, but yeah, I was fortunate that the business that I started first was able to kind of support me through the career transition. So you then opened your own place with a partner. 
and it's called Primal Supply Meats. I always want to say Primal Meat Supply, which it isn't. <laughs> Everybody does that. Uh, what's your goal with Primal Supply Meats? I kind of came back around to the goal that made me go into butchery in the first place. Um, and I can't say that it was a clear path where I had some five-year plan. But um, So I, I did, for most of two years, I ran Kensington Quarters. And behind it was a butcher shop and restaurant, but behind the scenes, I was doing all this sourcing work. Um, you know, with farmers, with slaughterhouses, dealing with trucking, like all these things that I never even imagined I would have to learn about. Like, you know, five years earlier, me looking like I want to, you know, <laughs> solve the supply chain issue with by learning to be a butcher. There was so much stuff I had no idea I was going to have to get involved in. Like trucking and refrigeration are such a part of my life. They are so unglamorous. <laughs> <laughs> so in my time there, as I got to know the city of Philadelphia and the food community and the market in general, both like, you know, the customers coming to the counter and the chefs I was starting to get to know because I was part of a restaurant. So thankfully it kind of got into that, the hospitality network as well. That was when I started to realize like, hey, okay, I know how to do this thing. Like I have a great network of farmers. Um, it's growing all the time. I, I know how to work with a slaughterhouse now. I know how to truck and haul and move these carcasses and deal with them. And I just had this thought that rather than do it for one restaurant, I could do it for the city. Um, so that's really, that was kind of what started Primal Supply, to be honest, was this idea of actually stepping back from the counter, a little bit away from retail. I have a retail butcher shop now, but I didn't add it to the model until two years in. Right. You have members, you have a butcher's club. Well, now you have retail. I mean, mm -hmm. it's grown quite a bit. Yeah. Initially, I was just trying to set up a model where we would, I, wa I wanted to kind of go back to that CSA model that I found early. Like early in my food life was the discovery of a relationship with the farmer with that commitment. And I really believed in it. And when I went to North Mountain Patras, which is the farm that I worked at, that one of the reasons why I wanted to be there so much was because they had to meet CSA. And I wanted to see that model in practice. So the idea was to work with chefs in wholesale capacity and then to create our butcher's club, which is like a subscription CSA model for home cooks, and that basically all of them would kind of be committing in advance. You know, the chefs are like, I, I know what they have on their menus and I'm sourcing for them all the time. So if I commit to a farmer to buy an animal, I already know who it's going to go to. And I wanted to take that sort of that retail piece where you kind of like you buy the things, you put them out, you open the door and you hope people walk in that day. Uh -huh. I wanted to take that out in the beginning. But we grew, and then we, we needed more ways to sell meat, and people wanted more access, so I eventually added it back in. And then you have classes, too, which seems like a, mm -hmm. a great way to teach people how to use the underloved cuts, the things that they've never heard of, and the things that are just hard to sell. Yeah. I love teaching people about whole animal butchery because understanding an animal, like the what the animal did in its life and its anatomy, makes you so much better of an informed cook. You know, if you can look in a meat case and just ask the question of, like, where does that come from? And that information alone can let you know what to do with it. Is there a short version of that? Like the shoulder, you're always going to want to braise. The steaks, you're always going to want to sear. The yeah, it's, um, well, so most of the animals we eat, chicken aside, poultry aside, uh, are quadrupeds, right? Like they walk on all fours. So basically, if you think about the fact that like for us, we stand up all day, right? Like the muscles on the sides of our back support us standing up. But in an animal that walks on all four, they get a free ride. They're literally like <laughs> piggybacking. <laughs> So basically, like the higher off the ground the cut is, the more tender it's going to be. And the closer to the ground, the more hardworking and tougher it's going to be. Like legs, anything that comes off the leg, you know, that's that walks every day, moves every day. The stuff that's sitting, the expression eating high on the hog kind of refers to the idea that the stuff up on the back is the most tender and to us the most valuable. Although value is such a crazy 
Oh, yes. <laughs> um, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the meat industry in America, which is... Okay. Yeah. Ready. <laughs> I hope you're ready. <laughs> Nourish and Flourish is a handcrafted, ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish and Flourish. Thought-provoking content and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is Heather Thomason, and we're talking about meat. Every day, I read at least one article about how we have to stop eating meat, and meat is destroying the planet. As a butcher, I wonder what you think about that. Um, It's a very loaded conversation. (laughs) I also read those articles, and for me, I think the important thing that's missing in this conversation is that not all meat is raised the same. We eat a lot of meat, like right now, as human beings, we eat a lot of meat in America, but also the majority of people are still tied to the industrial commodity food system, where animals are, uh, there's a significant number of animals being raised in a concentrated place. They're not like living and they're not using the land properly. That's what's terrible for the planet. And... There's this whole small uh, subsection of the industry that is people raising meat sustainably, and that is the actual opposite. Like, I learned about and came to butchery through farming, so I know a lot about sustainable agriculture and, um, and raising livestock in that way. And the way I learned to farm and the way that I've built my sourcing protocols to encourage my farmers to farm is with this idea of, like, rotational grazing and pasture pasture-raised meat. Everybody says pasteurized. Sometimes when they read read it, it's a common thing. They're like, what's pasteurized meat? I'm like, well, it's pasture-raised and there's a hyphen and maybe I should learn how to say that differently. But it's the idea that quite literally animals are raised on pasture all the time. Not like they're in a barn and they look at some land and maybe let them out from time to time. That Every day they're out in the elements and, you know, there's some, some effort to shelter and protect them, but they're I like to say that the way that we want to raise animals is that they should they should exercise the instincts that they were born to have. So they should roam, root, graze, peck, you know, depending on the species. And when farmers are raising animals in that way, it's actually, it's restorative and it's good for the environment. So rotational grazing is this idea that you have a small number of animals. It's the appropriate amount for the land, like how much land they need to walk around on it to continue to have grass or things to root or graze. You know, there's certain... Um, amount of land that you need per animal. But the idea is that you kind of keep them in a group and you let them onto a section of pasture and that day, you know, the the cows will graze or the pigs will root. And you'll let them do it until they've kind of disrupted it just enough. Like they've grazed the grass down from say like thigh high to, you know, calf high. And the pigs have kind of turned some things over and they've eaten some things and they've digested them and they've left behind manure, which is fertilizer. And they've just, they've just disrupted it in a positive way. They've not destructed it, uh, but they've tilled the soil and they've fertilized the soil and they've selectively eaten the crops that they want and they've put those seeds back so those ones will come back again. And then the next day you go and you move them to a new section of land and you leave that one behind to rest and recover. And farmers will do this with like movable fencing 
And it's about a three-month cycle, if you're doing it right, where that's going to grow back and you can bring those animals right back to that same spot. And the coolest thing that happens that as you come back, that same area of land, perennial grasses that grow up every year, more and more it's the ones that the animals want that are nutritious for them because they're smart. You know, they're not going to eat the stuff that's toxic or not, not good to them. And the topsoil gets richer. It builds up every, every time. And so like quite literally the grass is greener and the soil is richer and it's more nutrient dense. So the, the difference between the style of farming where we keep like just planting the same thing over and over again and, and asking, you know, just taking things out. We're pulling nutrition out of the land without putting it back, whether that's with seeds or crops or animals. This, this other style of farming is this idea that you're really putting things back into the land all the time. And I have had farm, I, so at North Mountain Pastures, we had, there was four major pastures and it was kind of a hilly property. And I remember over the course of the season that I worked there that you could stand high on the farm and look down to the area where the pigs, we were rotating them through the woods and you could see this bright green streak. I mean, like greener than you've ever seen. And it was, they had gone through and they cleared all the brush and then eventually like grass and like edible weeds um, started growing up in the forest because they were eating them all the time. So what do you think the future of the farmers in America is? That's a, that's a really good question. I think there's a future, but, but farming is like land is expensive. Uh, there aren't a lot of farmers around now, like in general, you know, like there used to be a time 50 years ago where a lot of people farmed and there was networks and resources and information. And there's not a lot of that. Like a lot of people, thankfully there's the internet but a lot of small farmers are just like having at it and it's hard work and the profit margins are low and nature is like an uncontrollable thing that's not necessarily on your side. So I'm rooting for small farmers, but it's a challenging path and I want there to be more of them, but more people have to support them so that they can make a living doing it. Do you end up in sort of controversial conversations with people? Not as much as you would think, although I have been protested a couple of times. And what was that like? Um, there is a, there was a festival in Philadelphia. It doesn't happen anymore, but it was the, um, Philly farm, Philly farm and food fest, a very cool, um, like kind of everybody comes together for a day at the convention center and all the small, small food producers are there. And so two years in a row, they asked me to do a demo and I would butcher a whole hog on the stage at this, like, it's a basically like a sustainable food conference. And I would always bring a farmer with me. So they would talk about it and our relationship. And then I do the butchery demo. And two years in a row, like angry vegans were ready and planted. And as soon as I would start, they would jump up with signs in front of the stage and be like, this animal died for nothing, like yell terrible things. And actually a really amazing thing happened because they were in the wrong place. They should have been outside of like a Smithfield factory, not, you know, in front of the stage where I'm standing there with the farmer. And the first time it happened, the audience stood up because there was chairs that they were sitting seating in front of this stage that I was on and the, the protesters ran in front of the stage and the people stood up and they physically moved themselves around in front of the protesters and put their bodies right up against the stage and they were like, we're here for you and they physically pushed them out. Wow. Yeah, and the next year they showed up again but the second year the conference coordinators were ready for it so they were like kind of swept them out of the way. But yeah, that's the only, that's so far that's all that happens to me. Um, for the most part, I've been pretty supported, and I feel like because of the way that I'm coming at this, like often when people choose to engage in like a thoughtful dialogue about being a vegan or a vegetarian, I think because I'm like, oh, I absolutely respect why you're doing that. I've converted a lot of vegetarians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people come to me and they start that conversation like, I'm thinking about it. Like, I stopped eating for this reason, and maybe I would eat your meat. And I'm like, okay, well, whenever you're ready, I will happily <laughs> get behind the counter and talk about what you're comfortable with and like help you cook it 
And uh, yeah, so I've like helped people through. It's really funny what people choose as like their gateway meats. What, what are the gateway meats? <laughs> well, it's like some people are like, I miss bacon so much. And I'm like, I get that, but I don't. I feel like if I hadn't me- eaten meat in forever, like to go right for the rich fatty thing seems kind of extreme. But it's so good. It is good. And I think about things like, you know, sort of weird visceral stuff. Like, well, how much do you want to be aware of the fact that you're eating flesh? Like, I don't think you want to start with a steak. Like, maybe you should have a burger. Burger, yeah, I could totally. Yeah, because I think people think, oh, maybe chicken. Like, chicken seems good. And it's like, are you sure you want chicken? I don't know if I'd start there. Right. So in your role as leader and then leading 20 people, do you ever feel like, wow, you just wish you were back, you know, with like a knife in your hand and separating the skin from the fat? Um, a little bit. You know, I will say that butchery is really hard, uh, like physically demanding, and I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, and so I don't think that, like, I didn't, I wanted to solve a problem. I wanted to learn butchery to do it. I didn't know I would love butchery as much as I do. I do love it. Um, it came naturally to me. I think it's like a combination of my past experiences that, um, I love the visceral, like, tactile tactileness of it. I love the attention to detail. I love connecting with customers. I love all of that. Um, so that, that was a surprise, but there is kind of a bigger thing, you know, that I'm moving towards. So I'm sort of okay with letting that go. Um, I do sometimes just think like, oh gosh, it was when I could do everything, things were simpler and it's not possible anymore. Like that's long gone. And that's something that I'm really, this, this year this is a primal supply turn three in last June. So, you know, we're about almost three and a half years old. And this lat the third, the year from like two to three, we just really grew, like we grew so much and really tipped past some of those moments where like, I can't jump in and save the day. I can't do the work when people call out. I had to really get disciplined about, you know, a manager wanting to be off and me being like, it's cool. I'll cover for them. Like I have my own job (laughs) and it's very (laughs) full time and it doesn't involve doing any of those things anymore. And um, so I'm, I'm learning all the time about how to do that. And I'm lucky to have a couple of good mentors and, and advisors to talk to. And I'm just figuring it out, too. Um, and a staff that's like uh, trusts me and believes in me enough, I think, to like kind of work through some of this stuff, because we've had it. We've had a challenging year um, of just everyone figuring out their roles and how to how to do the work well. But, yeah, that's like. When there was just five people, um, sometimes things were a lot simpler because it's like, there's a problem, I will, I can fix it. And so, yeah, that's, that's really like the hardest part, I think, is like, I can't, I physically can't be everywhere at once. I actually can't fix all the problems, even if I know how to do the job, because I know how to do all the jobs. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't touch it. You can't touch it. <laughs> so on the show, I always like to ask guests, is there some product or ingredient that you think is better than its hype? The, there's these folks in outside of Philadelphia that have a vinegar company, Keepwell Vinegar is the name. Um, they buy seconds off of local farmers and they barrel vinegars in, uh, in York and they're beautiful. And for the past few years, they've secretly been working on a miso project. Yeah. So they have this, um, white rose is the label that they put on it. And it's this white rose miso and they're making, um, a bene miso and a farro miso and we just started bringing it in. It was like secret. It was only available to a couple of chefs because they didn't have that much of it. And they just started packaging it. So I have that in the shop now. And I'm like totally obsessed with it. I love to whisk it into salad dressings. Um, I recommend like making compound miso butter and finishing steaks with it or even using it in marinades. It's a really beautiful product, but it's also kind of like 
the thing maybe that sent me to the edge because it is the flavor is just like nothing that you ever experience. If you're coming from like a grocery store background of those products, be it like pickles or misos or other ferments, like there's no, there's nothing like these, some of these small batch products where they start with a beautiful raw ingredient. Is there a woman uh, who you'd love to give a shout out broadly to? I believe in the chain of raising women, raising other women. And so is there someone who's inspired you, who you think that everybody should know about who has made it? change in in your life yeah um obviously in my new my my current career path there's not a lot of women around me um I am surrounded by men I have a lot of women that work for me now and they're amazing Um, I'm so proud of all all of them but uh um Marcy Tierney who's a a chef and restaurateur in Philadelphia um she and her partner uh, Valerie have a number of restaurants I think like seven of them they've kind of built this empire and they've sort of like quietly, you know, maybe because they're women, not not necessarily, but they sort of, they were a little under the radar for a while. And some, like, you, you know, I think people looked up one day and were like, holy shit, these women have quite literally built an empire. But I've met Marcy just in the last year. A chef connected us and we've become pretty good friends. Um, we've done some dinners together and we've spent some time together and like had a lot of personal conversations. And I'm going through like my own growth phase now where my business has grown so rapidly and a little thing that was an idea that I started with another person. It's like I have 20 employees and two locations and I'm just really trying to keep up with the growth and and learn how to be a leader at this scale. And getting to know Marcy is like, she is, she's an amazing chef. Uh, She and her partner Val, they have like such great business sense. The reason why they've grown the way that they have is because they've always been conscious of like how to do good, how to make good food, but also do good business. And it's like just really natural and inherent to her. So anytime I, I hang out with her, it's like she just just drops this wisdom on me about like how to do it, how to do it right. Like, oh, are you doing it like this? You really need to do that. Oh, you know what? Like this would make you more profitable. This would make your staff be more successful. Like this would make things run smoother. I just want to be around her and soak it up all the time. And they also just, um, they're smart about money, you know, like they are creative and that's how their ideas start. But in every every single one of their businesses, there's something that they know, like, this is the thing that we make money with. And that's kind of the core, and that's really important. It's the thing that pays the rent. It's the thing that pays the people. And then all of the other stuff that we do, that's flexible, and that can change, and that can grow in time. But, like, people don't talk about money enough, especially women don't talk about money enough. And, you know, we t- want to talk about sustainability. But, I, like, that's a kind of a big, loose term of this idea of, like, can this thing perpetually go on? And it has to be uh, structured and, and funded and, and in such a way where it can. Thank you so much for joining me today, Heather. It was fantastic talking to you. I have so many more questions that I'm going to ask <laughs> for all of you listening. I'm asking them off air, and then I'm going to put them on Instagram so you can, you're can. you not lost you're, to the conversation we're about to have about cooking um, meat because I, I need more. I need more help <laughs> cooking meat. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jeet, the greatest engineer, Nina, without whom I can do nothing, and all of you listeners Truly, I um, I value your input and your ears. If you like the show, please um, subscribe, rate, review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and enjoy your week. And I'll be back next week. Have a great time. Speaking broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.